Well, good morning. Ooh. You're good. I might fall over. That's fine. Hey, y'all. Uh, so good to be with you. My name is Chris Colquitt, for those of you who may not know me. I'm the campus minister for RUF at Northwestern. And uh, it's worth saying what I think most people have now heard, but I've not said it in front of y'all, which is that um, we're going to be leaving this summer to uh, move to Charlottesville, Virginia, where we'll be serving at a church called Trinity Presbyterian Church there, which means that um, this sermon is probably the last sermon I'll preach at Grace for a little while. And uh, before I start, I just want to say, and I think we'll have a chance to say goodbye more formally later, but as it relates to this thing that I get to do every now and then in preaching to you guys at Grace, this is um, one of the highest and privileges of my time at Northwestern and one of my greatest joys. Um, We love this church. We have loved being a part of the life of this church. And um, and it's a great joy to to get to bring God's word to you. So thank you. Um, Let me pray and then we'll jump into our text this morning. God in heaven, you are our father, our good father, and you love us. And you care for us. And one of the ways that you love us is by giving us your word. Lord, we couldn't know you if you didn't reveal yourself to us. And you have in creation, but you have most magnificently and savingly in your word and in your son, Jesus. And we that word, and as we attend to it now, we pray that you would help us, that your Holy Spirit would be with us, be with me, that my lips would not be restrained Restrain not your mercy from me. God, I pray for all of us that we would see and treasure the words of Christ, the truth of Christ, and the promise of salvation held out therein. Be with us now, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. Well, has been said already a few times, this morning is Palm Sunday, which is the beginning of the most important week in the history of the world. As Christ goes into Jerusalem, where he will eventually be tried crucified, buried, and then a week from today, risen from the dead, victorious over death itself. This morning is also the next installment in our series on the Ten Commandments. And this morning we come to the Ninth Commandment, the commandment against lying or false witness in particular. And at the risk of trying to do too much in a sermon, which is something that I almost always do, (coughs) what I want to do this morning is try to tie those two things together try to help us think about the life of Jesus and how it relates to the ninth commandment. Both in his own life, how Christ is the true witness, and in our lives as we seek to follow him in the life of truth. To do that, we're going to look at John 8, which was just read for us, and to orient ourselves in the Gospel of John. John 8 takes place in Jerusalem, During the Feast of Booths, this is six months before the events of Holy Week, Jesus is in Jerusalem interacting with the people there. And what we see is that though he's not yet formally on trial, as he will be on Thursday night and Friday morning of Holy Week, the trial has very much already begun. The Jews are seeking to kill him, and this question is out there, who is Jesus? Is he the Messiah? Some have received him as such. Or is he a blasphemer and a heretic who needs to be killed? That conflict between who Christ is is going to drive the rest of the narrative 
of John. And here we see Jesus giving commentary on what's going on in the trial. Some of y'all, uh, all y'all, will be aware that there's, there's, uh, there's an upcoming trial in Manhattan involving some famous people, right? Um, and if you've watched cable news this week, surely you've seen some talking heads analyzing the trial. Here's what's going to happen. Here's how the case is going to go. Here's what's going to matter for the judge and the jury, yada, yada, yada. End of analogy to that. But Jesus here is offering his commentary on the trial that is taking place in the hearts and minds of the people of Israel as they receive Christ or they don't or they reject him. And his commentary is quite provocative. He says, in essence, the question is whether or not you are going to believe me and my witness or Satan and his witness. We didn't read this. It wasn't printed in your bulletin, and that's my fault. I should have done it, but I'm going to read some more of John. This is from John chapter 8, verse 12 to 14, just before the passage we read. Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of light, life. So the Pharisees said to him, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and I know where I am going, but you do not know where I come from or where I am going. Jesus is taking the stand in his own trial. He is the star witness. And the Pharisees and those who reject Christ are accusing him of violating the night commandment, of being a false witness. And in the passage that we read, in verses 31 to 45, Jesus has some very strong words for that rejection. Here's his claim. He says, I am the true witness, but you, those of you who are rejecting my testimony, are rejecting it because instead of believing me, you are believing the lies of Satan. Did you all catch this? He calls them the children of the devil. They're strong words. Look at verse 44 again. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. The trial that is going on in Jerusalem relating to Jesus is a trial, a duel between two competing witnesses, the witness of Satan, the liar, And the witness of Christ, the true witness. Which one will they believe? Which one will we believe? Which one is violating the ninth commandment? And the stakes of this choice, the stakes of this judgment concerning these competing testimonies, is exceedingly high. Jesus says that the truth, those who receive him will know the truth and the truth will set them free. And even more strongly, he says that those who do not are in slavery to sin and to the devil, who was always a liar and was a murderer from the beginning. Death is brought into play, which we'll talk about as we go. And though this trial of Jesus occurred 2,000 years ago, the underlying contest between these two witnesses, between the witness of God and the witness of the devil, is a contest that has been going on since the very beginning of creation. In the Garden of Eden, it's a contest that continued throughout the life of the people of Israel, and it's a contest that continues to this day on the North Shore of Chicago in the hearts and minds of each of us in this room. That contest is what I want to talk about this morning. 
at dueling witnesses. Who is violating the ninth commandment between Christ and the devil, and who will we believe? So with that long introduction, here's how I want to proceed this morning. First, I want to think about, I'm going to offer an illustration, which I'll title, uh, The Witnesses and the Courtrooms. The Witnesses and the Courtrooms. And then two more sections of this sermon. First, believing the true witness, and then second, following the true witness. So the witnesses in the courtrooms, believing the true witness, following the true witness. That's how we're going to proceed. All right, so my students, many of whom are over here, uh, know this about me, and some of y'all who have heard me preach at Grace know this about me. I really like a good analogy, a good illustration. Like that's my, that's, that gets me excited. I'm not ready to preach until I find something fun. I don't know if this one's fun, but, but I'm going to spend a whole point building up a story for us to think about, okay? Um, I, y'all will know I used to be a lawyer, some of you. Uh, I was not a real lawyer, though. I never went to a courtroom. And so um, I, I went to boardrooms and helped people swap stuff. Uh, but real lawyers go to courtrooms. And so I know as much about courtrooms as y'all do. But um, if you've ever been to a courtroom, probably, I don't actually know that, that Winnetka's courthouse is like this. But if you go downtown in Chicago, uh, there, the courthouse is not just one big grand courtroom like you see in the movies. Um, the courthouse is a bunch of courtrooms, right? There's, there's 10, 15, 20, 50 of them, side by side by side. And so that's, help, that's helpful for this picture I'm about to build. I want, I want to talk about two courtrooms. Um, we'll call them courtroom A and B. Very creative, I know. Um, so in courtroom A, you're the judge. And the issue at hand is the truth and goodness of God. This is the issue that was before the people of Israel when they saw Christ. It's the issue before Adam and Eve in the garden. And there are two witnesses that take the stand, and they have conflicting testimony. One is God and his word and his deeds, ultimately in Christ. And the other is Satan, the liar, who speaks against God, who speaks against the goodness and truth of God, who tells you there is no God, and if there is, he's no good, and he doesn't love you. And the task for you as the judge in courtroom A is to decide which testimony you are going to believe. This was the setup for Adam and Eve in the garden as they sat at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the serpent came to tempt them and twist the words of God to tell them that he was not good and he was not true. This was the task of the people of Israel as they heard from the prophets who came to speak the words of God to them, the law of God to them, while their neighbors in the voice of Satan told them it was not true and God was not good. And this was the choice between the people in Jerusalem that holy week and six months before at the Feast of Booze, will they believe the testimony of God or the testimony of Satan? And it's the same setup that is in our hearts this very morning. And Jesus claims that choosing his testimony will set you free. And he claims that Satan is a liar and a murderer. That Satan's false witness risks our freedom, and our life. Satan's false witness risks our freedom and our life. Pausing for a moment, this is what false witness does. And this is, the, the, the ninth commandment is not, it's about lying, and it's right to see it as a commandment against lying generally, but what it specifically says is you should not bear false witness, which is a legal reality. It's standing up in court and saying, he did it when he didn't do it. That's a powerful sin against our neighbor, because if I testify against my neighbor, if I say, hey, Marshall killed that guy, um, 
and I find someone else to say, yeah, I saw Marshall kill that guy. Marshall can go to jail. Marshall can get put to death on the basis of the witness, the testimony of witnesses. False testimony can take away our freedom and our life. Murder without doing the dirty work. But that makes our courtroom analogy a little bit off, and that bothers me, right? Because it doesn't quite work, because we're the judge in courtroom A, and why would the false testimony of the serpent threaten our life and our freedom? And why would the good testimony of the son set us free? We're the judge. It's courtroom A. Okay, well, bear with me. I'm almost done with my silly analogy. After the verdict in courtroom A is rendered, the side door opens, Put it over here. This could be a cool courtroom. There's a door over there, right? It opens, and a bailiff comes through and says, hey, we need you all in courtroom B. Come on over. And so we hop down from the bench. We walk over, and he says, sit here. And it's not in the judge's chair anymore. It's in the defendant's chair. And we look up, and God, the Father, is there in the judge's chair. And where the courtroom A was concerned with whether or not God was good, courtroom B is concerned with whether or not I am good. That's a terrifying courtroom to be in. But what's more shocking is that that serpent Satan who was sitting on the witness stand over there in courtroom A, telling us how awful God was and how he wasn't, didn't, wasn't who he said he was and he wasn't good, right, he slithers down and follows the bailiff across. And then he slithers up into the witness stand in courtroom B. And he says, God, that guy's mine. He goes from being the false witness in courtroom A to being the accuser in courtroom B. He says, he doesn't love you. He is not good. He's with me. He belongs to me. Send him my way. The book of Revelation gives us a vision of courtroom B. It's a terrifying vision at times. And in it, in Revelation 12, verse 10, we read that Satan accuses the brothers day and night before our God. That in heaven, Satan is somehow there talking to God, accusing us of our sin, of our guilt, of our shame, saying, they're mine. They belong to me. You see a picture of this in Job. You see a picture of this in Zechariah. Satan is the great accuser. The false witness in courtroom A becomes the accuser in courtroom B. And if we believed him in courtroom A, he's actually speaking true testimony to God in courtroom B. We deserve judgment. We deserve death. This is how Satan was a murderer from the beginning. His false testimony ultimately led to our death, to our exile, to our judgment. Happily, that's not the end of the story. If you've been around Grace more than once, hopefully you know that and knew to expect that. Because despite being rejected by his people again and again and again and again, God sent his son as his last and best final witness to courtroom A. He sent Jesus to courtroom A to witness to the goodness and love of God. And if we believe his testimony, Jesus says the truth will set us free. Because just as Satan slithers over to courtroom B to accuse us, to the face of God. The true witness, Christ, who tells us of his goodness in courtroom A, walks over to courtroom B and takes the stand and goes from being the true witness to God's goodness to being our advocate before the Father.
Because it's just as Satan is accusing us day and night before God on high, Christ himself sits at the right hand of God, advocating for us on our behalf. Romans 8, 33-34, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Interceding is a big word. It just means speaking on our behalf. Hebrews 7 says something very similar. Christ is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Courtroom B, that place where our lives, our goodness is under judgment of God, has these two witnesses too, if we have believed Christ. Satan, speaking of how guilty we are, of what shame we deserve, of how we have rejected God. But Christ, speaking a true word, advocating for us and saying, he's mine. She's mine. Satan's false witness leads to our slavery and death. Christ's true witness leads to our freedom and life. The liar becomes the accuser. The truth teller becomes the advocate. Thus ends my extended metaphor of the gospel in, in the picture of a courtroom. Okay, I think that's helpful. It's cool if it's not for you. I hope it's somewhat helpful. Before we move on, it's worth saying here to those in this room who may not have yet believed the testimony of Christ, who are in courtroom, may not sure which one of those voices to hear. We live in courtroom A. There is conflicting testimony all around. Oftentimes, Satan's voice is noisier and louder, and there are more advocates of it. But courtroom B is real, and it's next door. And we will be called into courtroom B, and the judgment seat of God is real, and your conscience bears witness to it every day of your life as you feel that sting of guilt and shame at our sin. And the question before you this morning, if you have not yet received Christ's testimony, is this, who's going to testify for you in courtroom B? Is it going to be the accuser, the liar, who stands and truthfully to God says he's mine? Or is it going to be Christ, our advocate? Christ testifies to us this morning, this very morning, concerning the love of God. And he offers himself freely to us to serve as our advocate before the Father. Will you receive that testimony? I want to spend the rest of our time thinking about the implications of the truth of Christ, of his true witness. And the first thing to say is that if Christ's testimony is true, we ought to live our lives in that truth. We need to believe him and we need to follow him. We need to live truthful lives. Our second point then is to believe the true witness. If you're a Christian this morning, Satan for you is a defeated loser, but he hasn't given up and he doesn't go quietly. Satan has and will continue to tell lies in the courtrooms of your heart. We need to pay attention 
force our eyes to look at, force our ears to listen to the testimony of Jesus as we walk through this world. In courtroom A, in that place where God's goodness is on trial, the devil continues to proclaim his false witness to us. God isn't who he says he is. He's not good like he says he is. He doesn't exist. If you think he exists, he's not real. He's not good. And after a millennia of Satan's lies working their way out systemically in our culture and in our civilization, that voice usually doesn't come from a certain serpent slithering up into a tree. That voice comes from all around us. It comes from our peers. It comes from our culture. It comes from the world around. Romans 1.25 tells us that the world has exchanged the truth about God for a lie. They've worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, and as a result, everything has fallen apart. God has given this world over into foolishness. 2 Timothy 3.13, Paul warns Timothy, saying, Evil people and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Our world is a place that is being deceived and deceiving. That picture, it's awful but accurate, right? Our world is, is both subject to the lies of Satan and parrots of the lies of Satan, deceiving and being deceived. And our world parrots the serpent and asking us to question whether God and his commands are good. Did he really say that? Does he really mean that? Is that really good? Does he really care about you? We hear this in what is conventional wisdom on so many things today. We hear this in the pressure of our peers, both in subtle and explicit ways. We are pushed to be ashamed of and to doubt the truth and goodness of God. We feel like fools. We feel alone. Everyone can't be wrong. And more perniciously and more pronouncedly this week, the chaos that Satan's lies create the world of deception that is born of those lies, Satan then uses in this brilliant double move to testify against God. The first thing that happens after the fall in Genesis chapter 3, what's Genesis chapter 4? It's murder. Brother killing brother. The lies of Genesis 3 working their way out in culture result in us killing each other. So Satan's lies produce this wicked, wicked fruit. And you know the things of which I speak and, and we're tempted. Satan has tempted us to say, God can't be good and real if that's happening. If little kids get murdered. How can God be real? What a crafty move. His lies produce violence and evil. And then he says, God's not real. In the midst of a world that lies to us and that bears the fruit of those lies, we need to hear the testimony of Christ. We need to hear the good news of Jesus. We need to look at him and see his goodness. We need to look at the love that he manifests, the law of love that he pro pronounces to us, and to recognize in it the perfection of moral beauty. 
And we need to see him not distracting us from the wickedness of this world, not trying to justify it or minimize it or convince us that it's just okay. But looking at this evil world that Satan's lies have created and going to war against it. Not just with some unmanned drone or Patriot missile from afar, but literally by coming down to our world and walking into the darkest darkness, suffering the pains of death itself so that he could defeat this great enemy. Meanwhile, over in courtroom B, the trial of our goodness, Satan is very much at work as well. He's not just accusing us to God, he's accusing us to our face. Satan whispers and yells at you and me, God can't love you. How could he love you? You know what you've done. Like, do you really think that the God of this universe would love someone who struggles with that again and again and again? You're weak and foolish and the shame that you feel, it's right, yeah. You should be hiding. Why are you, why, why do you think you're, why are you in church? You don't belong here. This is for good people. And we need to see and hear the testimony of Christ again and again and again as he answers those lies, that his blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel, that his blood, that his work is complete, that his sacrifice is sufficient, that he sits even now at the right hand of God making intercession for you, that God, Christ in heaven right now is talking to God about you and saying, she's mine. He's mine. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. Who is to condemn? We need to believe that true witness And one really practical way we can do that is by doing what you're doing right now, which is coming to church on Sunday. Because this whole get-up that we're doing, it's, it's, it's the witness stand of Christ. He's testifying to you week in and week out of the gospel, of his love for you, of the goodness of God and the promise that he holds out. And then day by day, in the quiet places of your lives, we open the word we hear the witness of Christ proclaimed to you again and again and again. And we need to find friends, and they're sitting next to you, who will tell us this truth as we go on the way again and again and again. That you are not alone, that you're not a fool, that you're not the only one who believes this. The gospel is true. This is a good transition because following Christ means not only listening to his truth and believing it, but speaking it. And the first way we do that is in the lives of our neighbors, in the lives of our husbands and wives and children and friends, by bearing witness to the truth that Christ bears witness to, the ultimate truth. When we do this to our neighbors who do not know Jesus, it's called evangelism. And we do this to our brothers and sisters in Christ, it's discipleship and love. It's what we're called to do, to follow Jesus in bearing true witness. Last point, following the true witness, and here we're going to try to land and 
think about lying a little bit because that's what the sermon was supposed to be about. Which it has been, I promise. Beyond, beyond bearing the witness concerning God, which is the most important truth you can tell to anybody, and it's also the most important lie that you can tell by omission, to follow Christ, the true witness, is to walk in truth in all of our lives. There's a lot we could say on this. I don't want to get into a, a lengthy ethical discussion of whether or not you can lie to Nazis. Um, I think you can. Save that. Okay. Um, I want to think about why we lie in everyday life. Why, why do you tell lies? Why do you exaggerate? That's a lie. Why do you hide things? That's a lie. Why do we live against the truth in our lives? And I, I just want to point out some courtroom A reasons and some courtroom B reasons. The courtroom A reason is that we don't trust in the goodness of God and his commands. If we stop to think about our lying or our exaggerating or our hiding, what we will usually find is that we have excuses. But, you know, yeah, this outcome, yeah, but if, I, if I told the truth, this, this would, that's, not a good, that's not a good thing. And, and not telling, there's no bad out, it's just going to help me and not going to hurt anybody else, right? We, we listen to God's command, which is absolute, and we, and we start to make excuses, which is to sit in our head and say, I don't think that command is really, it's not fully thought through. I, God said not to eat of the tree, tree of the fruit, but like, did he really mean that this fruit? Surely that wasn't actually what he meant, and surely, maybe I misunderstood, maybe we can... That's the, that's the witness of the devil. And in courtroom B, the outcomes that we worry about, which is usually why we lie for some reason, those outcomes are on full display because the reason we lie is usually a courtroom B reason of some sort because we're insecure in some way, because we have shame in some way, or because we're trying to secure some good that we feel is fragile and at risk. We lie to hide our shame. We lie to build up our pride. We lie to secure things that we need. And when we do that, we're not actually believing what Christ says in courtroom B, before the throne of God. Christ has covered your shame. You don't need to hide. You can tell the truth about your sins to your neighbor right now. We confess silently. Maybe we should start confessing out loud. That would be fun. Right. Why not? It's true, but it's not, I'm, not, I'm not going to hell because of it. Because Christ is my advocate. He has paid my penalty. And he has covered your shame. But he's also secured your good. You are perfectly secure in the love of Jesus and in his testimony before the Father. All of your needs are met in Christ. There is no need that justifies you lying so that you can get it. Christ has met your needs. You are an heir of, the, of, of God himself. There is no wealth that is not yours. And when we confront the question of truth-telling in our life and we say to ourselves, that might hurt me, that might kill me. 
Jesus says, yeah, it might. Jesus told the truth, and what happened to him? So it might kill you, but he rose from the dead on Easter, and because of that, you and I can go out and boldly proclaim the truth of Christ and the truth in the small things of our life, secure in the love of God and the inheritance that we have in him. Okay, in conclusion, truly, I don't know how long I've gone. It's the last time they can fire me. Um, we've talked about these courtrooms. Um, what we haven't talked about, and this is another sermon, but in courtroom B, after Christ testifies to the Father concerning us, and God pronounces us innocent, righteous, and beloved. The next thing that happens is that he adopts us as his sons. And there's a warfare going on in this courtroom analogy that Satan's trying us to pull us back into this legal relationship to God again and again and again and say, it's not done, the verdict's not out. And just suggest this and you can ponder this as we go. Christian maturity in many ways, as you grow in your faith, um, Christian maturity looks like turning the lights off in the courtroom and locking the door and going to play with your father. Courtroom A is shut. God is good. He is your daddy and he loves you. Courtroom B is shut. You've been adopted and accepted. And when Satan comes up to you, if some... If you're all at lunch today with your kids, some of you have kids, right? Maybe you're at, front, what, what's that place called? It doesn't matter. Maybe lunch in Winnetka, okay? And some weirdo walks off the street and sits down at your table and starts talking to you and your kids and says, hey, your daddy doesn't really love you. And he says, hey, your kids, they're awful. You should get rid of them. What's it, what are you going to do? Right? What are your kids going to do? They're going to go, daddy, what the heck's going on? And, you, and you're going to call the cops, call the, whatever you're going to do. Get, get out of here. That like the weirdo off the street coming up to your table when you're hanging out with your kids, that's what Satan is in your life. And the more we can understand that, the more we can say, shut up, get out, the more we can live and walk in the truth of God's love for us. Okay, let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you so much for your word and for the promise that it proclaims to us. I thank you that you love us. I do pray that you would help us to walk in the truth. Most of all, in knowing the witness of Jesus Christ and trusting in his words concerning you and concerning the life and freedom that you hold out and knowing deeply to be true his advocacy before you on our behalf. And knowing those things, living in those things, rejoicing in those things, resting in those things in perfect security, would you help us to go out and live lives of truth from the big to the small, proclaiming your gospel to those who do not know, proclaiming your gospel to those who do, and living lives of truth and freedom. This we pray in Christ's name. Amen.